Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and welcome to episode 796 with Grace Lorden. Grace has excellent perspective on how to make regular progress on your biggest goals every day. So you'll learn one, how to free yourself from the fear of making mistakes, two, how to break free from imposter syndrome, and three, how to stop stress from hijacking your day. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've mentioned here, please pay us a visit over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP796. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out some of our goodies, such as the Gold Nugget email list, which gives you a summary rundown of the actionable wisdom that Grace shares, as well as unlocking the vault of all 796 of these summary write-ups. Those are the gold nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. So now here's Grace's story. Dr. Grace Lorton is the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative and an associate professor at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Grace is an economist and her research is focused on quantifying the benefits of inclusion within and across firms, as well as designing interventions that level the playing field for underrepresented talent within firms. Grace served as an expert advisor to the UK government sitting on their Skills and Productivity Board, is currently a member of the UK government's BEIS Social Mobility Task Force, and is currently on the Women in Finance Charters Advisory Board. Her academic writings have been published in top international journals, and she has written for the Financial Times and Harvard Business Review. Grace is a regular speaker and advisor to blue chip finance and technology firms. Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want is her first book. Big thanks to Grace for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. And now, here's Grace. Grace, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hi, Pete. I'm delighted to be here, and I hope that I am awesome at my job. <laughs> oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. No pressure. I'm excited to hear about your book, Think Big, Take Small Steps, and Build the Future You Want. Uh, but first, I want to hear about your dog kissing practices. My dog kissing practice. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that continues. And for my partner, it's the most embarrassing thing I think ever. <laughs> it's not even just in private. It's also in public. She will give me now kisses when she wants a treat. She gives me a kiss before she goes to bed at night. And actually, when I, when I want to laugh, I do say to her, Casey, can I have a kiss? And she does give me a kiss. So for people who don't like dog kissing, it's probably a really bad start to this podcast. Oh, no, I, I think that's that's adorable. My My kids lately... Have been asking at at bedtime. I want ten kisses, and I just love it. So, <laughs> so dog kisses. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll take those too. If uh, if you had a dog, as long as dog, I think if it's the dog, you know, 
that's cool. I might be a little uncomfortable if it's like a total stranger dog that looks ill. <laughs> I don't know if I want him kissing me. <laughs> but it's your dog. It's all good. <laughs> I think cuteness is a factor as well. Right? Yeah. So you've chosen your dog, so you obviously think it's, it's really cute. But I think some dogs do look quite intimidating. So yeah, I, I think stick to kissing your own dog for anybody listening. All right. We're already getting actionable wisdom. Thank you, Grace. (laughs) Well, let's hear a little bit about inside your book. Were there any particularly surprising and fascinating discoveries you've made while you were putting together Think Big? There were lots simply because when I was writing it, I treated myself as an experiment. So if you read the book, there's lots of tips that come from scientific research and I actually tried them out. Some worked for me and some didn't work for me, which I think really shows that you should, when you take advice, really figure out if it's actually working for you. I think some of the more interesting ones were thinking, for example, about the spotlight effect, how for me, I have a tendency towards perfectionism, which is, it sounds wonderful, but actually it isn't, it's quite crippling. And learning about the spotlight effect that people who are um, paying attention to you in the moment, probably aren't paying attention to you to the degree that you actually think has been mm-hmm. quite freeing for me. And I've managed to verify that as true. So you can you can take that mm-hmm. as depressing or not, Pete, but most of the things that I do, whether I do them well or do them badly, it feels like nobody's watching, which, which is very freeing for me, but it could be quite depressing if you thought about it in another way. All right. Well, so I'm intrigued. How did you confirm? Did you say, hey, you, were you watching me earlier when I was doing this? Or or how did you uh, put that to the test that you were not really being spotlighted? I think you wait for the legacy, right? So if you do things like public speaking, or if you are the person who convenes round tables, sometimes you will have blunders and you won't say things exactly the way that you wanted to say them. For example, you might not be as clear as you would want. And I used to ruminate on that. And I would ask you, if you were my colleague who was in the round table and procrastinate over it, what did you think? And because I'm drawing your attention to it, you will probably have a few comments. But I found that actually not necessarily drawing people's attention to it verified for me that people weren't paying attention to it to begin with. And actually even just leaving a lag to get feedback of one week meant that people had kind of forgotten my blunders and really saw the performance as an average rather than these very small, minute things that I was picking up. All right. Thank you. Well, zooming out a bit, can you share what's the big idea or main thesis behind the book Think Big? So I wanted to write a book that was for people who weren't able to just upheave their lives to create huge change. Because I think here in the UK and also in the US, we hear these stories of people who have great success and it feels like they do it overnight. So I wanted to write a really, really realistic book, but I still wanted to write something where people ended up achieving really, really big things. So the starting point is getting people to think big, which really is getting somebody to imagine what their life would be in the medium term. So think years rather than months, if everything worked out and you had no constraints. So Pete, you mentioned that you have, you know, two two young kids. You would basically not say, okay, I have two kids, so I have to really factor in their care in this think big. Instead, you would just imagine what if it all worked out. And then the second step in that is saying, okay, now that I have this vision of myself, what does that person actually do on a day-to-day basis? So I think one of the places where we fall down when we're thinking about our future is that we visualize ourselves doing these kind of huge, big things. So declaring that we have huge earnings in our company if we're, if we're entrepreneurs, imagining ourselves giving a statement if we're a CEO, imagining ourselves doing something else that's equally impressive if we've gone into another career aspect. But we don't think about the tasks that actually get you there and the grit on a day-to-day basis. So I get people to visualize those and assuming that they're happy with the tasks that they visualize, 
I ask them to put small steps in place that gets them doing those tasks now. Or if they're not able to do those tasks because of a skill deficit, to put steps in place to get those skills. If they visualize those tasks and say, actually, this sounds really horrible. You know, I I like the idea of running my own company, but the day to day sounds terrible. Then they reiterate the process again. And, And fundamentally, it's about figuring out what you love doing, but also figuring out what you love doing that leads you to something probably bigger than you're imagining at the moment. Okay, cool. Well, so that sounds pretty quick and zippy. Grace, is that the case? Or how long are we talking to we land upon a a vision and a plan that feels awesome for people? So I think it is zippy. I have exercises in the book that get people thinking about the activities they like doing on a day-to-day basis if they don't know what they want to do so they can map back to a big dream. I have guidance on the type of skills that you need to do particular careers. So I think the think big part is actually quite you know, it happens really, really quite. I love the word zippy, by the way, is actually quite zippy. But I think the hard part is putting the small steps in place and sticking to those small steps. So once you get over chapter two and you have this kind of big vision in mind, the rest of the book is devoted to thinking about how can you stick to your small steps? How can you find time to do the small steps? How can you overcome your own biases? How can you overcome the biases of others? And that part of the journey does take time. And I think most of us as human beings are really find really easy dreaming of something that we might never achieve. And those small steps are the bridge to actually making it a reality. Mm-hmm. All right. And in the book, you've, you've got six key areas, time, goal planning, self-narratives, other people, environment, and resilience. Can you share with us a couple of your, your favorite tips inside each of these areas that can help us to think big and realize those big thoughts? So I've said this so many times since the book has been written, so it feels like a cliche, but I mean, it is something that's fundamentally true, is that time is the one thing that we can't get back. It is our most precious resource. And one of the things that I I love doing when I feel that I'm not making progress is time audits. And I'd encourage anyone listening to do one as well. And really, so firstly, auditing what they've done on a day-to-day basis, ideally in 15-minute increments, and then going back and asking yourself, which bucket do those increments fall into? So firstly, are these things that actually allows me to be happy in the moment or allows somebody else to be happy in the moment or gives them value? The second are the things that actually are investing in your future self. So this idea of me plus or the person who you visualize when you think big. And the last are what I call time sinkers. And these are things that absolutely waste your time. And when I wrote the book, my biggest time sinker is sitting in meetings. I I work in a university and the meetings tend to be very, very long. I don't know about the US, but in the UK, they tend to be very, very long, very, very boring and no decision ever gets made. A lot of small stakes stuff gets debated. So for me, that was my time sinker to really focus in on. Do I need to be at these meetings? If nobody is actually making a decision, nobody is listening to me. Another time sinker for me was spending too much time on email. For other people, it would be social media. It could be online shopping, but really figuring out what those time sinkers are and reallocating that time to invest in your future long-term self. If I may, Grace, I'm curious. If you determine these, these emails are taking too much time, these meetings are taking too much time, in practice, how does one just ditch them? And it's like, you know what? Not doing email anymore. Hey, Dean or whomever. Not going to those meetings anymore. How how do you pull that off? 
It's a really great question. So I think for me, it's going to be easier than for a lot of people because one of the benefits of working in a university is they have this thing called tenure, where it's kind of hard to fire you. So if no one's listening to you at a meeting, it's quite valid for you to say to the chair, no one's paying attention to me, so I'm just not going to show up for this. And if they don't change the meeting, I think that's okay. I think it's harder if you have a job where you do have to show up, but nonetheless, I think it's possible. So for people who I know who work in finance and technology companies in extraordinarily competitive environments, one of the solutions that they have for the emails is to check emails at particular times during the day. So they're not firefighters and they're not heart surgeons. So if it takes them 90 minutes to respond to something, it's not going to be the end of the world. And that batching has been extraordinarily effective for them. On meetings, and we might get into this in a while, in a lot of companies where I've been working and doing work about kind of redesigning how leadership should look, it fundamentally is about redesigning meetings to give time back to your team. So again, moving away from these forums where we over-deliberate on small stake stuff through an environment where we have trust and bringing people together when the big things are at stake or when you're creating and when you're, and when you're innovating. In the book, I talk a bit about how you can redesign meetings if you're in charge of them, but also if you're somebody who's low power, how you can nudge the person in charge to get you there. Yeah, that's a great turn of a phrase, deliberating on low stakes stuff. And it's, I guess, one would need to think through, is it low stakes just for me? <laughs> is there low stakes for the company, for the team, or for everybody? And I think often the answer is it's it's low stakes for everybody. Maybe someone just doesn't feel confident enough to make a decision on their own without gathering input or they're extroverted. They just like to to chit chat. So I, I guess there's any number of reasons why meetings appear that ought not to have appeared. But I think that's a really great check-in question to work through there in terms of, is this in fact small stakes for everybody? And are we just talking because here we are and we're intellectual creatures who have different ideas, so we're going to talk about them because that's the topic placed in front of us. Yeah, I think it comes from a really good place. So I think as organizations grew, it was hard to build trust in organizations because if we think back, you know, a hundred years as things were actually getting bigger, usually you were just battling a growth cycle. So the idea of putting structure around meetings probably wasn't something that dawned on anyone, particularly when people were working nine to five and time wasn't as scarce as it is today. I think now we fundamentally have an oversupply of meetings to discuss small stakes stuff because we want to be transparent. So it comes from a really good place. So if, for example, I'm interested in how many bike racks that I should put outside buildings, it's nice for me to ask you, Pete, because I feel that I should be an inclusive person. Mm -hmm. But for you, that's taking your time. So I think the battle for leaders and for companies now is to firstly figure out what are the things that are low stakes and what's high stake and put transparency around the low stakes stuff for the one person or the, the, the two people who might really want to see how that decision is made, they should be able to go online and look that up. But I think for the rest of people who are actually happy to trust and give autonomy to their teammates, then they should get on with it. And I think part of it is that leaders themselves shouldn't be involved in the low stake decision making. So for example, if I'm in your team piece and you're you're the leader, you, like everyone else in the team, should accept me making decisions without you being there and the mode of transparency that's open to the team. And I think I see in teams now, particularly in finance and tech, where I, I do a lot of work, where people are moving towards that mode and they're getting just a lot of time back and, and people are ending up being happier, safe in the knowledge that when the big decisions are being made, 
they'll be called into the room. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And that's, I like the bike rack example a lot because you could very politely say, I trust you to, and whatever you decide with regard to how many bike racks is fine. And then that might be a good little test for yourself internally. Like, do you have any input here? It's like, well, actually, I guess I wouldn't want you to add hundreds of bike racks such that the closets are, or the hallways are really crowded. <laughs> but like, other than that, I mean, really, you, you could have five, yeah. you could have 50 and it's, uh, it's just fine with me. Yeah. And most people will make a really sensible decision in that domain. But, mm-hmm. I mean, and there's these experiments that are fantastic in behavioral science where they give people things to deliberate in meetings and they look to see how much time they spend on items like the back bike rack as composed to items like project choice, capital structure decision, pensions. Mm. And people tend to spend more time talking about the bike racks because fundamentally in meetings, most people can give an opinion on a bike rack because it's a very easy thing for us to conceptualize. When the material gets hard, you get much fewer questions. And actually for the meetings to work, we need it to be the other way around. We need it to be people like me who don't necessarily fully understand the question on pensions, for example, to be asking the questions so that everyone in the room gets to understand that really big decision. And we should leave the bike racks to somebody else to decide. That's a really good perspective. And I'm amused by podcasters, I've been in some podcast forums where where folks have a question about, I don't know, cover art, which matters. Mm-hmm. It's not the number one thing, but it sort of matters. But that's very easy for anyone to opine on. Like, I like the yellow one. It's like, I like the one with the bigger face, where a piece of art or design anyone can comment upon. As But but really what's what's most critical is, okay, do, do I have a show that serves a real yeah. And a real need that's somewhat distinctive and or superior from from the alternatives available. And so, but that's a lot harder <laughs> to <laughs> like you'd actually have to do some research to be able to tell you to opine on that as opposed to I like the yellow one. Yeah. So and yet, yeah, that's that's great. So in a way, the the primary driver of deliberation time is not so much importance or value, but just, I guess, ease of folks having opinions on or pineability. I don't know what we'd call that. So in behavioral science, there's a whole area of research that talks about shared information versus hidden information. So the shared information are the things that we'll have in common this evening when we're talking. And for a podcast, it probably makes sense for us to focus on things that are shared. Otherwise, it would sound really weird for the audience. But if we're working together, the value of us as colleagues is actually in our hidden information. So you'll have insights that I don't have. And we should take time to learn those for the big stuff. But we should hire somebody who can dele- we can delegate the small stuff to so we actually have that time. So some of the kind of work that I do is really getting people to firstly understand what we're talking about to be true, but secondly, to get comfortable talking about that hidden, that hidden information. Because one of the first things we do when we have new colleagues and companies is that we kind of condition them if they're going to stay with us to conform to the type of information that we like sharing in meetings, which really gets rid of the comparative advantage we get when that person comes through the door. And it all comes down to our ego. As humans, we just like to be comfortable in conversations where we fully understand what's going on. But obviously to learn something new, there has to be lots of moments in our life where we're sitting in rooms where we fundamentally don't understand something. We grapple with that So we get on the same page as somebody who has a different perspective or unique information compared to us. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. Well, so we had some thoughts on time. How about self-narratives? 
Yeah, so I mean, one of the interesting things for me, because uh, my background is in computer science, so one of the biggest learning curves for me has been that people prefer storytelling over data. One of the most interesting things for me in the psychology literature is that the biggest storytellers we are are the stories that we essentially tell ourselves. So if I'm ever going to do something new, what actually goes on in my mind just before I do that particular thing is going to govern how well I actually do it in the moment, how I feel coming out of it and whether or not I'll engage in it again. And in Think Big, I kind of explore the idea of self-narratives that might be holding people back. Like I'm not good enough. This doesn't necessarily suit me. I don't have time for this. And really getting people to challenge those narratives so that they get to move forward in a way that feels much freer. And I think, again, in writing this and in talking to different people on their perspectives, one of the things that really stood out for me is fundamentally, people often don't see it that it's themselves that are the majority of what's holding them back as compared to other people. We usually see it really clearly if somebody else puts an obstacle in our way, but those obstacles that we have through the image we have of ourselves, which is probably not true, by the way, is something fundamentally that I think people need to address in order to achieve and, given the topic of this podcast, be awesome at their job. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. And so if we're exploring the stories that we're, we're telling to ourselves or about ourselves, do you have any pro tips on identifying uh, what stories may not be serving us so well and how to reframe them? Absolutely. So I think that there's kind of two different ways in which you can go about this. So the first is that you can start listening to yourself, essentially. So when you have these big moments, recognizing whether or not you're going into imposter syndrome, recognizing whether or not your self-chatter is saying that you don't necessarily have enough time, which is my which is my one, by the way, recognizing what that actual narrative is and challenging that narrative in the moment by giving disconfirming evidence. And I think that there's some good evidence in psychology that this can work for people. I'm quite skeptical because I can't imagine myself being in a situation where I'm about to do an action that's making me nervous. And I find myself having the strength to have that argument with myself internally. So I prefer the other approach, which is really to, once you've identified that narrative, to think about actions that disconfirm that particular narrative and engage in those regularly. So really, for example, if you think about somebody whose self-narrative says that they're a smoker, so they now start saying, actually, I'm not a smoker, I'm somebody who does something different. So every time that they might think of a cigarette, instead of going and smoking, they bring that narrative to the fore so that they're swapping out one behavior for another behavior in themselves. Okay, cool. And then when it comes to resilience, how do we get a boost there? So resilience, so the chapter on resilience, I actually wrote before COVID. And I think it's been the most popular chapter in the book because during the COVID pandemic, a lot of people really wanted to figure out how they could become more resilient when they're at home. Again, in the same flavor as the book, I really lean on what are small things that you can do on a day-to-day basis that will preserve your resilience reserves or also enhance them. So I'll give you two, which are two of my favorites. So the first is to really reflect what you do when something negative happens to you. Mm -hmm. So whether or not it's a colleague insulting you, not getting a promotion to something even bigger than that, 
what are the typical type of reactions that you have? So really kind of engaging in that self of self-awareness. And for behavioral scientists, we call that period affect. So basically you're reacting with emotion and you're in this hot state, which probably isn't the best for you to make decisions about your way forward. And figuring out what you're actually going to do in that period. So for me in the book, I give the readers a list of things that I do that range from a walk around the block when it's something small to taking bigger time out to have to spend some time with friends and get the healthy dose of confirmation bias when things are a bit worse. And then the second stage is dealing with the problem. And I ask people to do this ahead of time. So really think about, you know, when negative things happen, what are you actually going to reach with so that they're not reacting with their emotions? So, and this is particularly useful, I think, for people who do become very emotional when things don't actually go their way. Within companies, you can also do this as with, within teams. If you're trying to build psychological safety, you could think about saying to your team, look, there's going to be moments where things don't go our way. When things don't go our way, we're going to take a time out. And this is what the timeouts can actually look like. And that does something for the team in giving them certainty about what would happen in an uncertain situation. And it, with respect to the individual, you're essentially giving yourself certainty about what you're going to do when things don't necessarily go wrong. So it seems to be very effective. The second then is to really go into a battle with loss aversion. So if you can imagine yourself, Pete, and you're walking down the street today, this won't happen in London, by the way, because the weather is, is extraordinarily hot today. But if you're walking down the street and it's a rainy day and somebody splashes you with a puddle, so they go through, you're soaked from head to toe and you're meant to go somewhere important. How, how would you react in that situation? Uh, I would probably say, ah! <laughs> would you shake a fist? Would you be annoyed at the driver? Oh, sure. I mean, I'd be annoyed, angry, confused, startled. No. Would you tell the story later to other people? It really could go either way. I suppose if I was entering a, a, a room and everyone said, whoa, why are you covered in mud? <laughs> I, I would absolutely tell them. <laughs> you might do it. I'd probably tell my wife, but uh, yeah, that's I'd probably leave it at that. But it would stick with you, even for that moment where you have that angry burst, you'd have a negative reaction. That mm -hmm. seems to be what most people would have. Then some people will carry it with them for their day. And then some people would just find it really hard to get over. So you have these kind of three types of people, if you like. You get the same when you have somebody who insults you. So if you can imagine yourself being in the workplace and somebody says, you know, Pete, you've done an extraordinarily bad job today. I don't know why you came to work. Usually people inside will feel quite negatively towards that person. Mm -hmm. They might tell their spouse or they might tell a friend, but it really weighs on their mind. Or if a colleague ignores them, the same thing. So if a colleague ignores them, they do feel negatively towards the person. What's going on? Why is Jim ignoring me today? I don't necessarily know what's going on. And on the other side, we don't celebrate when we don't get splashed by a puddle. We don't celebrate when people are incredibly kind to us and give us compliments in work. We're very unlikely to celebrate when somebody kind of gives us that greeting in the hall with a big smile on their face. And it's actually been shown kind of time and time again that people who focus on those moments, the, the driver who slowed down without actually splashing them and ruining their day, the person who is incredibly kind to them, the person who gives the good greeting, if you concentrate on those at a certain point in the day, which is known as gratitude in the literature or celebrating small wins if you're a behavioral scientist, it really allows you to not just kind of preserve your resilience stories because it moves the focus away from bad things that have happened to positive, but also allows you to become more resilient because you recognize that you have these good things going on in your life. 
And that is something that I really encourage people to try and see if it works for them. For me, I'm not a great journaler. So I usually do this at like the end of my day, like seven, it, it would be later tonight. And I, I write down that I'm really grateful for a good conversation with Pete. And having those moments where I actually kind of look at my day and say, yes, everything didn't go my way, but there were these things that actually stand out that life is going in the right direction is extraordinarily resilience preserving and incredibly easy to do. Well, Grace, you're also an authority on issues associated with bias. Can you speak to some of the takeaways there that can help us be more awesome at our jobs? Yes, I wrote a whole chapter on bias in the book. And one of the things that I ask people to recognize in the beginning is to think about what is the proportion of their journey that belongs to them? And what is the proportion of the journey where they rely on other people? And then we go deep diving into the biases that traditionally hold people back. And, and one of my favorites is confirmation bias. So it's my favorite because confirmation bias is both a good thing and a bad thing. So when you're having a really crummy day and things haven't gone your way, you absolutely want somebody who's going to take your side who's going to tell you that you're right and who isn't going to put up a fight against you when you say to them, it was all somebody else's fault. You absolutely want that. However, if we bring confirmation bias into the workplace on our regular days, when we're trying to do our job, when we're trying to get critical feedback, it really, really will hold us back. And confirmation bias is a tendency for me to hold a belief and then go looking for evidence that actually confirms that belief. So for example, if I'm somebody who believes that we should go with a particular project at work, or to use our example, that there should be 10 bike racks outside a building, I will look for evidence that confirms that particular belief. But of course, there's lots of other perspectives that I should be taking into account when I'm making big decisions, like the project to actually take on, a colleague to hire, or who to actually promote. And fundamentally, I think some of the battle that we have at the moment is getting within teams and individuals to really look outside themselves for perspectives that aren't their own and to battle their own self-beliefs. And if you think about whether or not you're growing as a person, it can be really helpful to ask yourself, when was the last time that you changed your mind on something that was a fundamental belief to you? So you, 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 know, you come into this world, we were brought up in a certain way, we go about our journey and we kind of create particular beliefs when did you actually change your mind? And in the absence of being able to identify when you changed your mind, being honest with yourself and saying, when did I sit down with somebody who held a different belief to me and had a conversation with them? And, you know, for me, most of my work is in companies when it comes to investment choices, colleagues to hire, colleagues to promote. But you can also link this to what's kind of going on in society and, and different perspectives with respect to governments and ideologies. And people just aren't talking to each other. And what it really comes down to is, as human beings, again, our ego lends us to hanging around with people who have the same viewpoints of us and always wanting to be right. Okay. Oh, Grace, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, no, I'm good. Okay. Well, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I think I'm going to go with Madeleine Albright, who has passed away very recently, who said there is a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Okay. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So my, I have a number of them, but one that I refer to a lot is one that was done in the 60s on the Pygmalion effect that really demonstrated that when researchers went into schools and they picked out the kids that had the highest ability and when they went away and they came back and they looked at the kids' test scores, well, they actually were kids who had done incredibly well. 
But what was really unique about this study was that the kids had been randomly selected for a stay. So they weren't the highest ability at all. And it really demonstrated two things. So firstly, self-belief of the kids mattered because they had been given the label that they were high ability but also the belief in the teachers towards these students. So if you are somebody who is struggling or who is, isn't doing incredibly well at work, it might just be that you don't have a manager who's giving you opportunities to thrive. And, and why I picked that one this evening is it has been replicated many times in companies to demonstrate that somebody who isn't doing particularly well in one team under a particular manager when they move and the manager actually believes in them and inputs into them and gives them opportunities, they do tend to grow. All right. And now could you share a favorite book? A lot by uh, Ryan Holiday. So at the moment I'm reading Courage is Calling, which is an absolute amazing book. And I'm really looking forward to the second part, which is coming out in September on discipline. I think the work he does that really links to stoicism and some other concepts that have been long forgotten and bringing them into the modern day is just so unique. I I would really recommend people reading him. All right. And a favorite tool? So that you use to be awesome at your job? iPad. So my iPad is used to check my emails. So on every other device, I don't have my emails come in and ping and distract me. I use my iPad as the accessory where I check my emails. And it's been the one thing that has really allowed me to increase my productivity in the last decade. So you don't view or reply to any emails on your computer? No. Or phone. Hmm. So everything it's on. And at the moment, it's in a different room. So the cost of me checking it is actually really high. So if you said, I want to go and just make a coffee, I'll be back in two minutes. Previously, I will be checking on my on my phone, answering some emails, getting distracted and not being in the moment. Now I have to physically walk out, get it. Sometimes I do do it on autopilot, I won't lie, but the majority of time it, it has become conscious. So it's not the tool itself, but it's what it enables me to do. Okay. And a favorite habit? Favorite habit is, I mean, I'm going to say the email checker, but I'll pick something different. And it's at walking my dog. So I walk her morning, afternoon, and evening, very short in the afternoon. And it's really just a, a chance to get mindful. Okay. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you often? So I say a lot that time is, is your most precious resource and people do on Instagram, let me know what they're using their precious resource from. And so we can't get it back. So really, really bringing people's focus to time. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? www.gracelorden.com. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes. I'd like people to make a pledge to have one small change in their life that will make them be awesome at their jobs. If they're not sure what to do, it can be doing a time audit. So figuring out what they did in the last week, breaking that time into 15 minute chunks and dividing it into things that are time sinkers, things that give you happiness in the moment and things that are going to make you move more towards your future self. All right, Grace, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much luck as you think big. Thank you, Pete. You're absolutely awesome. I really enjoy Grace's provocative question. If you think about whether you're growing, ask yourself, when was the last time you changed your mind on something that was pretty fundamental before? Because if we're not changing our mind on anything ever, then by definition, we are not growing. We have the same perspectives that we had before. And yet we tend to not change our minds very much or very quickly. We like to be right and (laughs) dig in and seek out the stuff that confirms the views So I found that to be a really handy challenge. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP796. 
Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.